0: Morning. All right. As we continue in our series in the Minor Prophets, take your Bibles if you would and turn to Amos chapter 9, the last chapter. Amos chapter 9. So I'm a bit out of sorts today because we uh, waited out the rain delay at the ballpark last evening and was coming down cats and dogs for about an hour and a half, and they didn't even do the first opening pitch till 10.06 p.m. So we didn't stay. We stayed for three innings. It was after 11.30, and I told Carrie, and she told me, we're getting out of here because it's too late to stay out, and we would have been after 2 a.m., but we still made it home, I think, 12.30. So I'm out of sorts. I forgot my reading glasses, so I have my notes in big print. Hopefully, we'll get through it. We're going to be looking at our final opportunity to take an examination of Amos we're going to be talking about, we still have hope. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 through 15. Go ahead to the next slide. Let's see. I want to make sure that your slides match mine. Go ahead to the next slide, Rochelle. Okay. Uh, that's chapter 3. Yeah. I hope I didn't send you the wrong slide deck because that's two weeks ago. If I sent you the wrong slide deck, which I didn't think I did, then I'll have to just go off what I have. Did I accidentally send you the wrong slide deck? Oh, no, must be getting old. thought I sent you Chapter 9, because two weeks ago I did Chapter 3. Oh, no. Well, if we don't figure it out, we'll just have to dispense with that. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 through 15. And as we go through Amos chapter 9, verse 11 through 15, which is the wrap to the book of Amos, what I'd like you to get out of that is that you would see in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ the fulfillment of the hope that Amos presented to the children of Israel who are about to undergo God's chastisement uh, because of their sin, which we've talked about extensively in the last two weeks. Our hope is in what's going to be described here in chapter 9, the covenant of David which has been and will be fully restored through the power of the gospel. So take your Bibles there again, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. We're told, "...in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this." Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So in this prophecy that Amos offers to the children of Israel, we've looked at over the last two weeks the elements of judgment and chastisement and the fact that Israel, because of their sin, was going to enter into captivity. Again, Amos was written close to 755 B.C., plus or minus. And so in less than 35 years, the northern ten tribes would be overtaken by Assyria, and they would enter into captivity. The, the two tribes of the southern kingdom, which be Judah and Benjamin, they would have a little bit longer, and it would be about 586 before the Babylonian Empire overtook them. But both the northern and southern kingdom, because of their ungodliness, their sinfulness, idolatry, immorality, their rejection of God, they would face that judgment. So at the very end of this prophecy, we see a message of hope. And this is something that we've seen already looking at uh, the book of Hosea. And we're going to see as we look at a couple of the other minor prophets that there's always this message of judgment that is always bookended by a message of hope. And I want to see three aspects of this hope that I want to share with you today. First of all, I want you to see the actual look at the covenant of David that he describes here in verses 11 and following. So if you want to take a look at... There we go. Hey, somehow. Okay. So, all right. So there's the visualization. There's the initial text, which I just read. Okay, go ahead to the next slide. People say, why do you do slides? I like doing slides because if you're taking notes, you can have a roadmap. Okay. So let's look at some of the specific elements of this Davidic covenant. Back in verse 11... We're told, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. And I think that's pertaining to the judgment that God would send Israel's way, which would lead to the destruction of the monarchy that was established by God. And it would also lead to the destruction of the temple. It would also lead to the people losing their home in the land of Israel and some other elements of that nature. Let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 4 through 16, which I'll have on the screen to get a picture of what this covenant represented back when God presented it through the prophet Nathan to David. We're told back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. Referring to the fact that there was no temple constructed yet. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling, the tabernacle, right? In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Referring to David, who was going to be installed as king, right? And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I'll make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, From the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I think this is probably referring to the physical temple that's going to be constructed in Jerusalem under Solomon. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And I believe the ultimate fulfillment of that is in Jesus Christ. And then in the most important verses in this passage, verses 13 through 16, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, referring to the eternality of that Davidic covenant. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Then verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Now, let's fast forward to Amos once again. Taking that context historically, about 240, 250 years before Amos prophesied these words. We have some things to look at. First of all, the Lord established an everlasting covenant with David in the Old Testament. There's no doubt about that. Also, we know that David would be representative of a righteous and just king who would lead the people back towards a relationship with the Lord. And that is one of the reasons why Saul was dethroned by God because he was disobedient. And we read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 15. But of course, unfortunately, David was Uh, an imperfect ruler. We see that just about four chapters ahead in the book of 2 Samuel, the episode with Bathsheba and Uriah, and then Nathan the prophet has to come in the, the night and to tell David that he has sinned against God. And then we know that after David and then Solomon, his son, who would rule for 40 years, and also was an imperfect ruler, we knew that the northern and southern kingdoms were divided And what this led the people into was idolatry, immorality, and flagrant sin. And it eventually caused them to go into the periods of exile that we see described in the rest of the prophets, both the minor prophets and the major prophets. The northern kingdom fell to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon. But one thing that we need to keep in mind as we read the prophecies, both in the minor and in the major prophets, is that the exile that was portrayed, described, and prophesied was not God's final word for his people. The initial fulfillment under the old covenant is here in Amos, in that a remnant of the people would be restored to the land once again after going into exile. And as we read books like Nehemiah and Ezra, we can see what God did to restore the people to the physical land of Israel. Now I talked about this both two weeks ago in Amos, and I talked about it when I was talking about Hosea's prophecy a few weeks before that. Remember that sin cycle in the Old Testament where God would deliver his people and bless them? It's beginning with the exodus from Egypt. And then over time, the people got complacent because of the fact that they just assumed that God would bless them continually. And that complacency led them to a period of downward spiral of sin. And that downward spiral of sin eventually led them toward chastisement And judgment, and then captivity. And then after that, toward the end of that period of captivity, God would bring deliverance and healing once again. It seems to be a repetitive sin cycle that we have in the Old Testament. And Amos in chapter 9 here, right at the very end, is coming full circle to that last phase of that sin cycle, which is that God is going to restore the people. But we have just a temporary fulfillment in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, We have the permanent fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. It would take place later on with a new son from the line of David, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I did here is I just give you a list of all of the references in the Gospels that describe Jesus Christ being the son of David. Sometimes it was straight from the author's mouth. Other times it was people who were asking Jesus to do something for them such as physical healing. They would cry out to him and call him the son of David. So throughout the four Gospels, we see reference after reference concerning Jesus Christ being the literal son of David. That means that he was from the line of David, which means that he was the one who fulfilled the prophecy that we see here in Amos chapter 9. Quite interesting. We're going to see a little bit more of that as we get into the book of Acts just a few minutes. So we still have hope because of the fact that God has fulfilled this covenant of David through the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice here, we have covenant benefits. In the old covenant, back here in Amos chapter 9, we have five elements of the benefits that are described here. And I'm just going to allude to them because the ultimate fulfillment of these benefits comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see the people are going to receive a restoration he describes the booth of David that has fallen is going to be raised up again. Believe, I believe that is talking about the actual physical rebuilding of the temple, which is described in detail in Nehemiah, where it talks about the building of the walls of the city, and then the book of Ezra. The possession of the nations. Edom is a picture of evil and wickedness throughout the Old Testament. So I believe that this is talking about the fact that physical Israel would once again possess the land and that they would be able to live peacefully with their neighbors. We see also a restoration of the fruitfulness in the land, talking about the fact that Israel once again would be a prosperous physical nation despite the fact that they had been cut off because of their sin. We also see spiritual renewal taking place. That's described as well in verse 14. And then finally, we see the reversal of the curse of God's judgment. Again, this is in the Old Covenant where God would use physical national Israel to portray what he is going to do under the New Covenant through Jesus Christ to a people who would be the new Israel that is talking about the church. How do we know that there's a tie between this Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Well, we have to see that there's this link because we look ahead to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So take your Bibles ahead again. We already looked back to Second Samuel. Now we're going to look ahead to Acts chapter 15. As you study these prophecies, by the way, one of the keys to being able to interpret them is to be able to look backward and then to look forward. And you really have to dig into the Scriptures. It's not just looking at the passage and then trying to take a guess at what it means. And some of these passages, by the way, as well, are very difficult, and we have different points of view as to some of the specific elements. So we're just hitting the high points. So at that Jerusalem council, the question at hand was what to do with the Gentiles who were applying for church membership, if you want to put it to modern terms. They were trying to be part of the body of believers. And we know that the church in the first century was primarily based upon Jewish background, and so they were struggling with what to do with Gentiles who wanted to be part of the community of believers. So this is James's judgment beginning in uh, verse 13 after they finished speaking, this is referring to Paul and Barnabas and Peter primarily, and also Simeon. James replied. James, we believe, is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem and also was probably the author of the epistle of James. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with This, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. So he's referring specifically back to verses 11 and 12 of Amos chapter 9. In his judgment about what Paul and Barnabas and what Simeon and Peter had just said about the fact that God is indeed doing a work amongst the Gentiles to make them a part of the body of believers in the first century. And then in verses 19 through 21, this is the ramifications of that for the first century church. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has laid has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So these are the conclusions that James gives here in Acts chapter 15. Three big things that we need to keep in mind. And again, this is talking about the fulfillment of Amos chapter 9 for the new covenant. First of all, James is arguing along with Peter and Paul and Barnabas that God was doing a work in their midst to demonstrate that the Gentiles did not have to fulfill the requirements of the Old Testament law to be qualified for entrance into the Christian community. Application for today is that we do not need to put a litmus test on somebody when they want to come into our congregation because accepting Christ in faith, the preaching of the gospel, that was the standard And that needs to be the standard today. So Amos' prophecy was not completely fulfilled because James was alluding to it in order to show that the spreading of the gospel was just a preview of Christ's second coming that would inaugurate a period of final restoration, which would be the ultimate final fulfillment of Amos chapter 9. That's amazing to think that in Acts chapter 15 we have at least an indirect allusion to the second coming Of Jesus Christ as well. So this is the consummation then of all of biblical prophecy, old covenant and new covenant. And as we look at that, there are a couple different views that are used to interpret both Amos chapter 9 and then what James is talking about there in Acts chapter 15. The first view emphasizes the literal uh, historical view that it is actually physical national Israel that is going to be in view at the very end of time. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. He says, "'Lest you be wise in your own sight, "'I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. "'A partial hardening has come upon Israel.'" And then he says, "'Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. "'And in this way, all Israel will be saved, "'as it is written, "'The deliverer will come from Zion. "'He will banish ungodliness from Jacob.'" So in this interpretation, we are in what's called the age of the Gentiles. And at some point in the future, which we do not know exactly when that's going to be, God is going to supernaturally restore physical national Israel so that physical Jews will once again become a part of God's people as a whole nation. Now, some people put big significance on all of the events that have taken place since May 14, 1948, when Israel became a nation, again, recognized by the United Nations, A lot of people put a lot of stock in all the things going on in the Middle East even today. So that's one view, that this is actually a literal fulfillment that's going to take place in physical Jerusalem, that we're talking about an actual restoration of the physical planet Earth using that nation Israel, which is going to be once again recipient to the gospel of grace. The second view is more of a nuanced view that says this. Well, look at... Acts chapter 15, and then go back to Amos chapter 9, and you can see a couple subtle differences in the wording. Amos literally said the restored kingdom would possess the remnant of Edom, which is a symbol of wickedness, right? A symbol of wicked, sinful humanity in the Scriptures, starting with Esau. And then also, Amos also says that all nations would be called by God's name. Whereas James, here in Acts 15 does not quote those exact words. James says that the remnant of mankind, he transposes Edom for mankind, may seek the Lord. And then he, instead of using nations, he says it is Gentiles transposed in place of nations, referring to the fact that the nations are going to be receptive to the receiving of the gospel. And so under this interpretation of these two passages, The kingdom of God is being extended to the Gentiles as they receive Christ, just as the Jews do. And so the Gentiles are part of the restored kingdom of God that is not defined at all by geographic, by ethnical, by political, by social considerations. So here's the nuanced view which puts those two together. Gentiles, which most of us in here are Gentiles, right? I am. Most of us here probably are. We indeed enjoy the privileges of being part of God's kingdom, but there is still opportunity for Israel, the literal, physical Israel, to be restored and at least a possibility that some of the prophecies about Christ's future coming involve earthly as well as heavenly Jerusalem. And I'm just going to close this uh, portion by saying I've studied this for more than 30 years. I've kind of vacillated back and forth between being a literalist when it comes to God restoring physical national Israel as part of the body of Christ and looking at this more of a symbolic metaphorical interpretation that says all of these prophecies pertain only to the church. I think that maybe there's a chance that you have some aspects of both and we just don't know all the details yet. I don't think that that's the important part of this though. I think the important part is that we as individual believers recognize that this prophecy that's contained in Amos chapter 9 and described as being fulfilled in Acts chapter 15 and then ultimately consummated in the book of Revelation pertains to us. And that means that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, right? Because we have received Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And so as a result of that, our responsibility and obligation is to live like citizens of the king. And I have four passages of Scripture, very short passages of Scripture, which talk about living like kingdom citizens. And this is the application of all of this that we've looked at in Amos these last three weeks. First of all, in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance, and notice this, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the son of David, has established that eternal kingdom. Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We've been called into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how should we walk? We should walk in a manner that's worthy of being part of that kingdom. We should follow and honor the king. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom of Jesus Christ cannot be shaken. The son of David cannot be defeated. He cannot be overthrown. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Think about that. We take God for granted sometimes in these days where we like to talk about God's love and we talk about God's grace, but we need to understand that God demands that we as Christians offer up a sacrifice of our lives that is worthy of the fact that we are part of his kingdom. And then finally, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, God has delivered us. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So all four of these short passages speak of the fact that we are citizens of God heaven. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us, in fact, that our citizenship is in heaven. So we are pilgrims. We are sojourners here on this earth because our lives are in Christ. Our lives are hidden in Christ because our destiny is in Christ because our focus needs to be on eternity. We need to keep the fact that we are citizens of that kingdom in mind each and every day of our lives and our lives should match up to the things that we profess to believe that's the ultimate application of this prophecy here in Amos chapter 9. So there's so much that we can get into that we left off the table because there are nine chapters, a lot of ingredients that we didn't really get a chance to go into. This is for you to study on your own. And next week we're going to have a bad sermon. You know why? Obadiah. Oh, I'm, oh, Eric's going to be giving us a bad sermon next week. Obadiah. So, but keep studying the minor prophets, okay? Amen let's